Actual Fluency Podcast, episode 48 with Mike Campbell, Sentence-Based Learning and Glossica. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Actual Fluency Podcast. This is episode number 48, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Michael Campbell, who's the founder of Glossica. And Michael and I get to talk about sentence-based learning and why it's advantageous over the alternative methods. And we also talk about the power of the Glossica method, which is indeed a sentence-based method. And along the way, we make a few tangents on traditional learning, like classroom-style learning. And we also talk about dialects and normalization. So that's very interesting and it's coming up in just a minute. I'm not going to take too much of your time this time on the introduction. I sometimes do have a lot to uh, say, a lot of news going around the world. But right now it's a bit of a quiet time, so you'll get to enjoy Michael Campbell in just a second. But before we get to the episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone who supported the crowdfund for the upcoming season two of the podcast the last episode of season one will be episode 50 and i have a very special guest on that episode uh, to help me celebrate and look forward to the the next season and in regards to that next season i have the crowdfund running and there's still about two weeks left on it so if you haven't supported yet and you would still like to get some of the exclusive benefits and well in in a way free stuff then go on to igg.me forward slash at forward slash af podcast you can also find a link on actualfluency.com at the top there's a bar and uh, that'll get you to the crowdfund page and you can contribute anything you see fit and i'm extremely grateful for everyone who has contributed who shared who've uh, sent emails uh, thanking me for doing this season uh, so far. And of course, that's incredibly motivating for me to keep going and produce even greater episodes. And speaking of today's episode, I know that the audio quality is a little bit off, and I apologize for that. And part of the reason that it is off is definitely uh, me to blame, uh, because I am unfamiliar with the current setup I'm using. You might have heard that the old computer I used to edit all the podcasts on and record them on as well uh, kind of broke down. It gave up on life. And that's uh, part of the reasons why I started the crowdfund was to simply replace the equipment uh, needed to record these uh, episodes. And therefore, the adjustment period for getting onto a new system, starting to record using a different program, you doing the editing again, it has been a bit of a problem. So. I apologize for the audio quality today. I know there's a bit of static, uh, but please bear with me because uh, Mike shares a lot of great stuff in today's episode, so it's definitely worth hanging on to the end. And speaking of the end, he also shares the Glossica New Chinese New Year's Super Sale, so uh, stay tuned for that discount as well, you exclusive discounts for uh, Glossica uh, purchases only in February, so that's uh, exciting uh, at least. But with all this audio quality, and I know it's happened a few times, I'm not going to pretend that the audio quality is is the best. Uh, it's definitely my ambition to do it, but a lot of the times it's really out of my hands, and a lot of the times I'm also an idiot and make mistakes. So, you know, I know that it's important to have good quality out there, and just so you know, it is my number one priority, um, possibly only slightly behind the 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 content you know if the content wasn't good then the quality wouldn't matter but uh, on a very close second the quality matters a lot to me so this is by far the biggest priority i have for the upcoming season two and i hope that you will uh, help me do that by pointing out mistakes or if you you know if you ever hear any problems don't hesitate to write to me i I really love uh, hearing from you in every capacity it doesn't have to be uh, only praise you know i I love to hear criticism as well things i can do better i am aware of the audio quality problem and i hope to fix it for the next season it is a learning curve for me as well and uh, i hope that together we can make it just fantastic and uh, that's all for me today and i hope that you enjoy this interview with mike campbell
Alright, today I'm excited to be joined by Michael Campbell. He's a linguist with more than 20 years of experience and also the founder of Classical Language Training. He joins me from Taiwan. Hey Mike, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? Great. Um, Mike, before we get started on, on Glossika, which is really the, the interesting story of the day, can you just tell us about how you got into language learning yourself and what you've been doing so far? Well, uh, language learning started as, uh, as an interest of mine uh, when I was a child, and uh, I happened to travel a bit with my family and live in a few different countries, so it, it really opened uh, my vision uh, to the world and to you know the possibilities that the world provides. Uh, you know, living in different countries also exposes you to uh, some different cultures and things like that. And I, I suppose a lot of people don't really get the chance until they're they're older. And, and I really, really recommend that if you're if you're a young adult, um, maybe between your studies or you've just graduated, definitely go take that trip abroad and spend you know maybe spend a, a few months, three or four months abroad. I think it's. It's uh, you may not be interested in the languages themselves as as a passion, but um, you'll find that that experience will enrich your your life in so many other ways. Right. And what about uh, in going into specifically learning learning the languages of the places? Was that just a natural reaction, or did you get a, an interest in it uh, coming up? Well, I, th I think it was a very introverted child, so it was. Uh, an interest of mine was just how to communicate with people. So uh, the desire to communicate. So I, being introverted, you feel like you're never you're never um, socially accepted, or uh, you're you're never you're always socially awkward, and you're you're not good enough. So I think that learning a language or a foreign language filled in that that um, that desire to want to communicate. Right. And of course, languages are fascinating. So uh, I think it, it was not just the psychological thing; it was also just a really fascinating subject. So yeah, it's uh, like a bit of detective work. Sometimes you can sit and look at all the moving parts and and find out why things work as they work. Uh, so that's exciting. Did you also make it uh, your degree as well in education? Uh, I, I tried to pursue it as much as I could, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so just make it everywhere. Yes. All right. And when did you come up with the idea that, hey, I'm going to actually design something that can help people learn languages better? Uh, well, you know, I've been, um, I've been doing a lot of language training over the years, and I realized that uh, using... Well, I had I had also been hired as a teacher for for multiple uh, jobs in the past, and I and I observed how the system was in in, in teaching foreign language. Uh, I tried to um, really focus on what um, what problems the students were having, where was the curriculum not really uh, satisfying not just the needs of the student, uh, for example, in terms of tests, but in, in efficiency for helping the students really achieve uh, a better spoken ability. And I think that uh, a lot of the students that I've worked with in the past have been are all very shy, maybe even introverted types as well. So I think that instead of just focusing on, hey, let's have lots of conversations, um, that doesn't always work. People need structured input. And so uh, if you... If you just tell them, create a sentence using this word, they'll sit there for five minutes and still not think of something. And you know, you have to be able to work with these kinds of uh, personalities. And some people are just not, um, they just don't communicate. Uh, but they want to communicate. So you have to provide them a lot of data. And then if you, uh, if you just ask them to, to say things, uh, they'll get the grammar wrong, and they don't know why it's wrong, and you know. And so I just found that one of the one of the uh, ways that I used was giving students a lot of input and having them repeat that input, recognize the grammatical you know parts in that input. Um, we don't always have to understand why it's like that, but we just need to recognize that. The, the grammar is there. There must be some reason why native speakers say it this way. And we practice it until it becomes something that, that really flows. You know, it's part of fluency is just uh, getting the sounds to to flow, getting the intonation, and all of these things. And then the, the students are 
less focused on a, a psychological, like how do I talk to people, but more on an activity of just learning the fluency. And once they've done that a few times, if you put them in a, in a conversational situation, because of the practice they've done, they're, they're more likely to be able to, uh, to, to converse and, and open up and, and say, say some things, despite you know, how shy they may, they may be. Fantastic. And, and do, you, do you feel like this is also a problem in, in normal elementary school education that the sort of the curriculum or the way to teach is a very one-sided, uh, maybe vocabulary-based approach? Yeah, I, I, after all of these years now, and I've come out with this method using uh, the mass sentence method, it's not something I created, it's just putting a name to something that, that I recognized is, um, that works, uh, that I felt that works with my students. And so uh, what I found is that vocabulary is not always the, the number one thing we should focus on, but rather I, I truly believe that fluency does, does not mean that you can speak everything and you know how to say everything in a language. Fluency just means flow. It's it's what a river does. It, it flows. It's fluid, right? So fluency is something that we can accomplish from, from the first day of a language lesson. If you're just going to learn how to say um, a simple uh, a simple phrase, whether that's or can you say it fluency? Or you know, some of these harder languages or with longer phrases, uh, you can actually uh, achieve a fluency. Um, saying it unfluent would just be you know, and then, then people are just looking at you and wondering, wow, what's wrong? Yeah, what's wrong with you? That's that's really cool, and and I guess um, you know I always find it interesting the different approaches you can kind of attack language learning because I guess a school of language learning right now is that you learn each individual part of a sentence uh, of the syntax, and then you sort of work your way through filling the blanks yourself, which is a is a kind of a big contrast to yours where you you learn the whole sentence or whole sentences. And then you can kind of replace the, the, the individual terms and you see the grammar working. Um, what do you think are the main weaknesses of, of doing a the first approach, sort of a you know, one by one, which is what I have been done have been doing for a long time and I think a lot of people do too. Well the thing is with um, what I would say is that there's a certain framework that exists for how Europeans uh, communicate and think. And this is where you have a source of, of a lot of philosophical writing. Um, uh, you have uh, a lot of scientific writing uh, that has come out of, and I'm, I'm going back in history, you know, several hundred years, come out of the, the German, uh, the, the French, and the English um, schools uh, in universities. And so there's something with the, the European language framework that gives people an ability to uh, to uh, assemble all of their ideas with these uh, dependent clauses. And there's just something that works in the, in the language with the dependent clauses and everything. And then when you, uh, at, a, at a quite a young age, I actually started to uh, get exposed to Chinese. And so I, I wanted to be able to master this language so that I could more easily master other Asian languages that had Chinese influence. And so I really put a lot of effort on Chinese. And uh, what I found is that if you are learning to, like what you said, if you have these blanks that you fill in, uh, and you have this, uh, the, the framework is completely different. I, if, it, it would be the same as if you went from a European language to a Bantu language of Africa, or you went to a Dravidian, or, or, or Japanese, or I'll take Turkish language. Um, they're just they're just built on completely different frameworks. Or if you go to Arabic, the, the the frameworks are different. And so, it's not that they can't express the same things in the same depth. It's just that you have to rearrange the whole framework of how you express yourself. And what I found is that in the European, from one European language to another, you know, uh, with the exception of maybe Hungarian and Finnish, what you get are the pretty much the, the exact same framework and you're just, you know, the the, right. the dependent clause, you're going to start with the word that. It could be 
que or qui in Italian, Spanish, or French. Um, it, you might use a, a, an article in, in German, um, in Ikatori, in Russian, uh, you know, something like this. So you, you, all of these languages have almost a parallel structure, is what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so when you're learning one language to another in a parallel structure, what you get is a lot of one-to-one -one mappings or maybe just rearranging uh, for the word order, but it's really still the same structure. When you go to another language like Japanese or Chinese or Arabic, what you're, what you have, what you're faced with is a completely different framework. And so what I found is that if you're learning just vocabulary, vocabulary doesn't translate. If you're learning just the sentence structures, they don't really translate either. What you have to learn how to do is restructure everything that you want to communicate into a completely different framework and you have to understand how to how to you have to understand that framework as like a native speaker does in that language and then say it present it uh, how they would in that language so oftentimes when we do translation between Chinese and English for example it, we would have to focus more on um, of course there are key vocabulary words if you're if you're doing a lot of um, technical uh, translations or interpretation you want to be able to use the same kinds of um, adjectives and verbs and nouns but the framework is is quite it's quite different and so if you are working from the, if you're learning a language from the position where I'm just learning a lot of vocabulary words and I'm going to learn what the tenses are and I'm going to learn how to say the past tense and the future tense, well, you're going to have a really, really hard time understanding what human language is all about because you're still in one corner of the room. If the, if the world is, is a room, you're just sitting in one corner. And if you venture out and you get into all of the other corners, you'll figure out that human expression is... is is really variable, and there's a lot of different frameworks to present your ideas. And so um, it, it just comes back to the point where, what is the approach that you use? And so if we look at a foreign language in the sentence, what my most favorite way of doing it is, here's this sentence, and here's in my language, and here's the sentence in the foreign language. Somehow these two sentences have the same meaning. Now I have to figure out how the parts match. They could be in completely different orders. They could be using different verbs. But then again, you look at English and a lot of words, they have completely different meanings. There's an example I use uh, in our publications. It's, uh, for example, in, we translate into Chinese. To commit to a relationship uh, <laughs> means that you're, you're putting an effort into this. To commit a crime or to commit suicide means you're doing a completely different activity. And so when you speak your own language, you may never even realize that you use one word to mean many different things. And in some other languages, they'll use different sets of words, or they'll use different actions all combined into one word, which you may not even have realized that you could do that in another language. So there's one to many mappings and there's many to one mappings and you just need to recognize how words um, are put together and that's what we call collocations because um, if you just learn the vocabulary you're missing out on a lot of data on how to express yourself in a, in a foreign language. Right. But why is it then the that so much F emphasis is put on learning the vocabulary today. Uh, if you go to, I guess, any language learning website, almost all of them will say or recommend some form of vocabulary learning and usually individual word learning. And is there no benefit to doing, doing it that way? Chris, I'll tell you what it is. Um, the, the benefit does exist. And the benefit is a short-term benefit. And the benefit is measurable. If I go onto a website that uh, improves my memory with uh, a lot of space repetition through the uh, um, through looking at text or maybe even short sentences and it's repeating the parts, I think sentence method is is a much better approach. But I'll get back to another problem with that that's completely unrelated to what I'm discussing now. The if we're just working on uh, memorizing our vocabulary, memorizing vocabulary, for example, and there's a lot of these websites that do it for Chinese characters, and I have a lot of uh, issues with that in particular because Chinese is not what people, most people think 
the, the structure of Chinese vocabulary is not what most people think it is. Chinese is not one character, one character, one character for every word. That's not how it works. Um, it's normally strings of characters that are morphemes or roots in a, in a larger structure, and those morphemes get put in there in a certain order uh, to express a, a, a specific meaning. So right. you could take a, a word in English like write, and then you could add a you could add a prefix to it, and it becomes right, then becomes rect, and it becomes correct. Then I can add an ending to it like ibul, and it becomes corrigible. And I can add another prefix to it, and it becomes incorrigible. It means something that cannot be corrected, right? So I built it off of the word rect, correct, corrigible, incorrigible. Okay, so uh, that's an example of a fusional language where the sounds change inside of the word. In Chinese, you can build things up in much the same way. So if I wanted to say incorrigible, um, or you know, I could just I could just automatically translate that into Chinese using the 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 knowledge of the roots. But these are not words by themselves. Uh, the characters are not used. Uh, you know, in, in isolation, I should say. So the problem with these these methods of just memorizing vocabulary is that, great, that you can measure it, you, you can see that I've made progress, I got 100% or I get 90% progress and I remember this many words, and then you go and you listen to the language, well, you have, you're gonna have a completely different problem there. You can go read some articles in the language, well, you're having a different problem there because you have uh, uh, the, the lex, uh, not the lexical issue, but the syntax issue. The word order is going to confuse you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe some grammatical points, but it's probably more or less word order and choice of word or choice of vocabulary. It's not a good idea to just translate vocabulary directly into foreign languages. You, you can do that. I mean, you can speak like that, and, and they may understand you, but it's not how uh, locals normally speak. And so it's. I always think it's great to get full sentences with all of the syntax in there, with all of the word choices in there, and it's the way a local person would speak. And I learn from the way he speaks, and I practice that way of speaking, and I get familiar with those common words the way they use it. And slowly but surely, I learned the the native way, the way these native uh, speakers speak. Right. Yeah, I find it very interesting. Uh, always uh, find it interesting the different discussions. Uh, but this certainly seems like a more natural way. You know, you pick up when you're listening to a language. You're not listening to each individual word. You're listening to them in a context usually, right? I mean, if you're a baby, you're not just <laughs> hearing one word at a at a time. So I can totally see how that's a much better approach, and it it kind of annoys me a little bit that there's not more focus on it. But I guess we're doing our best today. <laughs> but, well, you know, the, I just thought of another example that I had a discussion with uh, somebody the other day. Um, the discussion about Chinese dialects, in particular. Uh, the thing is, is that there's some misunderstanding about what is a dialect and what is a language. And I'm not really going to go into that discussion because there is no real answer to that. But um, there's a, a Chinese language that I speak or that I have I have learned. It's called Southern Min, or it's uh, more commonly known as Hokkien or Taiwanese. And there's another dialect of it uh, spoken in uh, mainland China in the city of Chaosan or Chaozhou. And in their online uh, online, they usually refer to themselves as Tio Chu speakers. It's a T E O C H E W, and um, when I first heard this dialect spoken for the first time, I couldn't understand anything. Even though I can uh, converse regularly in Taiwanese, even though these are dialects of the same language. Now, when I was listening to it, I started to hear some words in the middle of the sentence, in various sentences that were exactly the same as Taiwanese Hokkien. I said, oh wow, I understand that. Oh, oh, there's another word. Oh, there's another word. I could, I could actually hear those words, and then because of the word in front of it and behind it, I started to understand what those words were. It's like you had a completely gray area, and then you had something that was really clear, and then something next to it that was a little bit gray but became clearer. Then as time goes on, you listen to more and more 
of them speaking, and you start to hear more and more parts that make sense, just because you already had some common ground, and then you build up your understanding from those parts. Now, I would be very, very far away from actually speaking the language at that point just by listening, but I would get some understanding of the language in a relatively short period of time. So when people say that, oh, all the Chinese languages are just dialects, they can all understand each other, that's not really true. Uh, if the language is really different, but there's, it's really impossible to understand the language. We have a, a Cantonese speaker in our office, and if she, she starts speaking Cantonese to everybody, nobody will understand anything that she's saying. And um, my ability to pick up maybe on a different dialect is probably completely different than how um, some of my, my colleagues in the company, uh, completely different than what they would be able to do because they don't have as much linguistic uh, experience that I have. So. Just because I can do that with their dialects doesn't mean that they can do it themselves. They would really need to have a lot of contact with that dialect to really start to understand it, and it takes time. Right. Well, that's a that's a perfect introduction to uh, the next uh, little topic I'd, I'd like to talk about, which is of course uh, Glossika. And um, could you just give us the uh, you know the elevator pitch for Glossika, the thirty second uh, introduction to the company? Well, I don't I don't think I've really practiced any kind of uh, elevator pitch because we always do everything online, and um, I haven't been making very many videos recently anyway. But uh, the bottom line is that we have a, a system that's called the Glossika Mass Sentence or GMS system. We also have an audio component. Uh, that is Lasica spaced repetition. The spaced repetition is also based off of my experience with students, uh, where we test, um, you know, repeating things over a period of days rather than in the same. We, there is a spaced repetition in the same session. There's also spaced repetition over a period of days. And by building on that, um, we can help people acquire languages, <clears throat> uh, building up the syntax from small sentences to ever larger sentences. So. Um, uh, there are some other uh, websites that you can use where you can practice uh, sentence methods as well. And uh, a lot of those methods, they're based solely on the written word. And the way people write their languages is completely different than how they speak. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, I've been working a lot on both uh, Armenian and Polish, in addition to Hakka, one of the Chinese languages, but I'll leave that aside. Uh, when it comes to Polish, um, it, it, I, what I've seen the, the people talking about in the uh, polyglot forums is that um, Polish is extremely difficult. It's one of the most difficult of all the Slavic languages or of Europe, and, and I, don't, I don't see where they get this idea from. If you're just looking at the writing, it can probably look a little bit confusing because they use two letters to represent one sound, like the check, they will use a hat check over the S, but in, uh, in or, or over the R. And in Polish, they will write the same sound, SZ, or RZ, they just add a Z instead of writing a hatchet. So if you recognize the spelling and what it stand, stands for, it's it's written very uh, it's written very phonemically how the people speak. And there's a few simple rules that you learn to to create the voice version of the language, uh, devoicing certain sounds and whatnot. And then it's just a matter of practicing sentences and building up a vocabulary from those sentences. And I don't think this, it's, it compared to Russian, Russian's much more difficult because you have an issue with um, uh, the accent or the stress in the word moving all over the place. This happens in Belarus and Ukrainian as well. But in, in Czech, Slovak, and Polish, the accent is always fixed. So I don't even need to use a dictionary to figure out the pronunciations of Polish, Czech, or Slovak when I'm learning the language. I don't need to put the word in Google Translate and then hit play to hear how it sounds or how it's pronounced because the spelling in Czech and Slovak, the stress is always first, and in Polish it's always on the second to last syllable, unless it's a word borrowed from Latin, like music would be musica. Uh, and then, you know, there's some very 
very uh, logical logical things going on with the with the stress patterns in Polish. Polish is not a difficult language. If people would stop telling themselves it's a difficult language, they sat down and took maybe 15 minutes to look at the spelling system and said, okay, the spelling system, it, it makes sense the way it's written. If they have their own system, it's different than other countries, but it's their system and it works in their way. If you sit down and learn it for 20 minutes, Polish becomes a, a much easier language to learn than I would say Czech or even to pronounce in, in terms of pronunciation um, or, or even Russian or, or Ukrainian or Belarusian. And there's a very large Polish community online, a very large presence online, and also they have a, a large group of people living overseas. I think Polish is a beautiful language and people should um, really get more interested in it. Don't be scared by the way it's written. I think the same thing is true with Chinese or, or Japanese. People are scared because of the way languages are written. The, the way languages are written have nothing to do with, uh, with the language itself. It's just a, a way of writing it down. It's just a way of recording it. You know, if I record my speech right now in MP3 format or WAV format or I record it in video format, who cares? You can record every language in, in whatever script you want to. The point is, is, does it help you learn how to speak the language? Does it help you understand the language when it's spoken? So learning to read and write is a completely different skill than learning to, to speak and listen. And so... This is one of the things that we're trying to get across with Glossika is that all of our publications provide sound files. We provide international phonetic alphabet. So you can look at the language on the page and see how it is spoken compared to the script. Because obviously the spoken form of Polish or Russian looks very different than its spelling, but we put it there side by side on top of each other so you can actually compare this is what the language should sound like when you're speaking it, and this is how it's spelled, which is kind of an old system, which you know is already starting to get old and maybe doesn't match the way people are speaking today. Like Russian, the last uh, update for the spelling system has been already a hundred years, so um, a lot of letters in the Russian, in a lot of the Russian vowels are now you know spoken differently than how they were spoken a hundred years ago. You know, if you if you learn the word hashul, there's three different pronunciations of the vowels in that word. There's three different pronunciations of the O vowel. So right. if you if you want to go in and analyze all the rules and everything, you, you can spend several hours doing that, or you could just repeat after me, Harashul, Harashul, we practice the sentences, um, and then you start speaking the language and you have some fluency that you've gained in 10 to 20 minutes. So it's your choice. I mean, you could analyze or you could practice. And I, I tend to tell people, practice, 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 and then if you want to know more, go analyze it, spend some time if you want to, but, you know, Put your practice as number one. Keep practicing, keep practicing, because if you look at little children, they don't analyze things, they just keep doing it. They keep doing it, keep doing it, until they're fluent. And it's a good method, it works, you know. And don't give up, you know, just keep keep going. Yeah. What were the challenges or difficulties uh, starting out developing the method, and, and, and did you have any, did you have other plans than, than what, what it looks like today? Well, the the only the only issue that I had with um, the only issue that I had was with the educational system. The um, bosses and teachers were telling us we have to teach the language in this way, and I would have a problem because that's not how I speak the language, and I would want to teach the pronunciation in a way where um, I would I would hope that the students are 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 gaining uh, some value in being able to speak the language in a more colloquial way that doesn't sound robotic. You know, to me, it would sound robotic. So um, this is looking at allophonic variation in the language. So if you, if you observe the way that a British person would pronounce certain words uh, if they're speaking received pronunciation and they're from London, England, or whatever, uh, they're going to use a lot of... Um, aspirated t sound, so they would say better, um, little. And if you listen to Americans speak, or Canadians speak, and even in England, a lot of the, the local dialects as well, uh, more spoken forms of English, uh, they're, going, they're not going to use the t sound, they're going to use uh, 
some places in England they use glottal stop, and other places they'll use uh, a flap sound. So you'll hear Americans saying better, little. Now this is, of course, everybody will understand better, and they will also understand better, but it sounds rather strange when you're teaching students and they're over-pronouncing every single letter according to how they learned it in the alphabet. And that, that feels very robotic and strange to a teacher. And so my, my whole goal was how can I develop a way to help these students speak fluently without feeling so tired trying to over-pronounce everything? Because uh, native speakers, they rarely... Uh, they rarely enunciate everything so clearly. It's, it's, it's a flow, it's a, a speech flow. And a lot of uh, teachers at the time were telling me, don't worry about it, when they get older, they will just automatically switch to fluent speech. And I, I didn't, I knew these students for many years, I never witnessed that happen. I, I, I talked to older students, I talked to adults, and they still had the same problems that the children had. And I said, there's a problem with that, there's something wrong here. And so I looked at the, um, the research and yeah, there's a difference between a dictionary pronunciation and a, and a spoken language pronunciation. And that has to do with these small little sound changes. And believe it or not, every language has them. Mm-hmm. And some languages are more notorious than others, like, like uh, Danish. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, because if, if you, if you want to teach sort of the way the language is spoken, how do you then, I mean, let's just take the middle of Denmark, whatever. Uh, how do you choose what a school in the middle of Denmark should be taught when the sort of the local dialects are so different that it's almost like I mean the the vocabulary is, is the same usually there's a little bit of a regional difference in southern Jutland but usually it's it's the same vocabulary but the way they're spoken the pronunciation which is what we're focusing on here is so different then how does the school not go for a, or, or the sort of the standard high Danish you know the 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 way the newsreaders always speak, and or, or should we have each school adapt to the local environment? Okay, so I'm ask, I need to ask you a question. Uh, the the schools out in the uh, the, the more uh, other regions, maybe in the more northern regions of Denmark, uh, where some dialects are spoken, the all of the school teachers are told that they're supposed to use the high speech Danish in the classroom, or is it actually up to their own? Choice just to speak in a local dialect. Huh. Actually, that's a good question. I, I, I don't have an answer for that, uh, but I would guess that it's encouraged, but probably not uh, I follow through. What I think happens in most schools in most countries is that the children come into class and the teachers use the regular dialect and speech with the children and get them calmed down and they understand everything and then they open their books and they start learning how to read and now everything starts sounding different and so everything that they read off the page is supposed to be pronounced in this uh, standard pronunciation which sounds completely different when you close your book and you start talking again with the teacher and of course the words are understandable it's your language they're just pronounced completely different than how you're speaking at the moment Right. That's how it's a very challenging. That's how I think it happens. Right. No, it's very cool. Um, in terms of the selection of languages on Glossacare, one thing that always impressed me was just the sheer amount of languages, and maybe more importantly, the obscure the obscurity of some of them as well. And I'll be honest, you know, a lot of the languages that you have, I have never even heard about. So where did you get this focus in the company? And I guess that comes from you as a person to focus on these lesser uh, popular languages. Well, for one, uh, since we focus on the spoken language and we want to produce uh, book versions of these these, uh, audio training, number one is that If we're going to do a language like Arabic, we have to make a choice. Which Arabic do we teach? Uh, So we have an Egyptian Arabic that's almost complete right now, and it's all written in dialect. It's it's written in Arabic letters, of course, but then we have it uh, transcribed into Roman script and then also transcribed into international phonetic alphabet so that you can actually follow along 
whether you want to learn how to read dialects Egyptian Arabic or not, I don't think that that's the most important thing when you learn a language. Uh, but learning how to understand the language, learning how to converse and respond to people is probably more important than if you can uh, read all of the funny letters and scripts from around the world. I think that that is a different skill and it takes practice, but it should not be uh, the number one uh, number one goal when learning a foreign language. I've learned a lot of Armenian in the last month, but ask me to read an Armenian word. I was still struggle really, really poorly. I don't even recognize half the letters yet. So, but that doesn't affect my understanding of the language and how much uh, audio input that I've had and how, how many things, uh, sentence structures that I can create, you see. So learning how to read is what children learn how to do when they're, you know, between six and 10 years old. So it's, it's always an ongoing process. So learning how to read, I think it needs to be put in a secondary position to learning how to speak and learning how to listen, how to hear the sounds of a foreign language. So that's why we spend so much effort on what are the phonetic values, what are the phonemes in the language, what are their values, what are all of the pieces. All of the pieces of the language are encoded in the IPA. So it's like the DNA of the language. Now, the writing is just a, a convention. It's just a way to record it. So the writing is something you can learn later on if you want. And in some cases, like Chinese, it's extremely difficult uh, to learn. But um, getting back to my point is that uh, if we're going to teach Arabic, uh, we could teach modern standard Arabic, uh, and then you could learn how to talk like a reporter or like somebody reading the news. But nobody talks like that in real life, and you'll have a hard time trying to communicate and make friends. So what I want to do is uh, have the modern standard Arabic along with the dialectal Arabic, and then our whole audio program is based on the, on the dialectal Arabic. But at least you have something that you can go back and forth and compare with the, uh, the international standard language there. Um, and then uh, part of my quest in trying to figure out what are the uh, ways to acquire a language and how it's uh, spoken and understood is I had to give myself a few challenges and go out of the way to learn languages that are completely unrelated. And because that gives me a challenge in vocabulary and syntax, the whole framework. Uh, so I have to go learn a language from another uh, from another language family. And fortunately, where I live here in Taiwan, there are um, a lot of Aborigine languages. Number one, the resources are scarce for these languages. And number two, they're built on a completely different framework. So if I took my methods and I tested myself on learning something completely different, on, on a language that has no resources to begin with, it's only a spoken language, then what results am I going to get? So I, I focused on learning a number of these languages and I actually went and took a government proficiency exam on one after four months time and I scored 92% on the speaking and listening uh, for, for this government proficiency exam. And this is a new program that the government is putting out. It's to allow all of the ethnic people to have, uh, to recognize themselves. We have our own language. We are a recognized group. And so I think that's great because people, they like to have, uh, they, they like to have some sort of sense of belonging that they have their own tribe or they have their own language or their own group, their own family, uh, these, and clan. You know, these things are important to, to human, humans uh, in human nature. So uh, the government has recognized that and given, given all of them uh, recognition that they exist. And so part of that effort is also allowing them to create their dictionaries and their stories and their literature and put some effort in, in uh, their languages. And it just so happens that these languages are the, uh, the source of all of the other Austronesian languages around the world. So Malagasy and Madagascar, now when I look at this language, there are a lot of similar words that, that appear in the, the languages of Taiwan. And I'm, I, I'm constantly surprised that a language so far away on another island halfway around the world has so much uh, similar vocabulary. I'm looking at Maori or Hawaiian or Indonesian, Philippine languages, they all have these similarities. And so it's really fascinating to um, have been able to learn what we would call an Aborigine language, but that's just because it's so small. There's just a small number of people here in the mountains of Taiwan, but they have spread out all over the world. 
their their uh, children and grandchildren, the descendants, have, have gone off and lived in a lot of other countries, and then those, those countries gave birth to new languages over time, but they continue with the same traits. So I think that if you learn one language in one family, you have it easier to learn other languages, and, and it's easier to understand a lot of the other languages in the same family. So um, that was part of my goal was, uh, number one was um, to try and learn one of these uh, averaging languages to see what would be the efficiency of the method. And number two, um, once you start learning a language, you really start to make a lot of connections with that language and that culture. And so um, I would have never thought that I would get involved with uh, Aboriginal affairs and things like this, but then you, you tend to start to see the world from their point of view. You talk to them, you speak to them in their language, and you, you hear their voice, and you start to, to understand um, their point of view of the world. And they're just like this tiny little corner. For example, they're, they're on this one little mountain in a tiny little corner, and the whole world out there is different than them, and they have nowhere else to turn to. And so they, they're, they're a lot of times very shy. Um, there are a lot of times they're just very inwardly focused. Um, they're, they don't know how to communicate with the rest of the world. They don't know how to stand out and be confident and, and uh, lead like, you know, in a modern society, a successful career and other things like this. And so I think that by the government's intentions of allowing them to, to really focus and, and on themselves and their own identity, it gives them that confidence that they can walk into the city and they can go in and get any job that they want and they can proudly say that they're uh, an Aborigine or their mother language is, is something you've never even heard of. Maybe even in your own country, you've never heard of this language before. And they say, wow, that's a language of Taiwan? I didn't know that. You know, and that, that kind of thing happens all the time. Because nobody in Taiwan memorizes some 20 different language names, you know. So it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's empowering. It gives people this kind of empowering. And, and I think that me, I'm a person that is involved with um, improving language methods. And so these, these people here in Taiwan, the Aborigines, they're the direct benefit of my efforts uh, to improve language training. I turn around and work with the government to improve better and better uh, training methods, not just for the Aborigines, but also for the local Chinese languages as well. And so right. I've learned a lot just because, well, yes, I can learn a language, and uh, I can learn a language using this method, even a language that is not written, and even a language that has um, very little resources. And so I think that that goes to show that there is some value in the method that I'm putting out there. And number two, you don't always need a writing system to learn a language. And so the writing system, we can develop it and we can make it better and better over time. Uh, the Aborigines, they all have writing systems now, but they're still going through spelling reforms and changes based on the, the structure of the language. It's, a, it's it's kind of a complex process. It's a super interesting topic and um, one that I'm, I'm sure could be we could talk about for, for, for much longer, but, but if, I mean, we're running out of time here. But Chris, if we look at it the other way around, if we, if we find that these methods work for the averaging languages, we can turn it around and say, here we can improve education for learning English. Here we can improve education for how people learn Chinese. Even the biggest languages in the world right. benefit from what we've discovered. So, I, and that, that's my, my main goal. Yeah, so it's sort of a, it's a, sort of a mission for you because I, I can't imagine it's, it's a very profitable uh, thing to offer, you know, the very, very obscure languages. Uh, I don't, don't suppose the demand is, is that high. Uh, but the, the government is very wealthy. Okay. Okay, so it can get subsidized some of it. Yeah, and, and, and we work with the, the Hakka Affairs Ministry, and they, they, they're very wealthy uh, branch, and the, the, the averaging affairs, um, they, they don't do anything for profit, but the government has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of subsidies for for promoting education and these kinds of things, and we're working with them. So if um, there's a project that they feel has value, 
um, they can go ahead and, and, uh, and subsidize all of our uh, work that goes into that. And we also, um, we also make some money from selling our major languages as well. But I think it's a trade-off. I mean, um, I, want, I, I want to be able to provide – we have languages in development for India. We have languages like Sorani and Kurdish uh, and uh, Kurmanji Kurdish. And uh, very few people want to learn these languages. but. Our, our, our courses can actually help the Sorani speakers and the Kurmanji speakers learn other languages like English, French, German, uh, Chinese, you know. So it's a, it's a two-way street. So we may, not, we may never sell a, a Kurdish course. We may only sell it to a few, uh, you know, interested people, five or six people around the world. They might buy a Kurdish course. But... If you provide this course and you work with the local uh, local people in there and they promote it, um, a Kurdish course for learning English that was developed by an international company abroad, then it gets attention. And so um, that's one way that you know the, the project can be subsidized as well. Fantastic. And I had a question about um, on the website. You say that Glasgow isn't really designed for people who know nothing. Of the language, can you just uh, explain what, what sort of level people should be on before they, they start using Glasgow? All right, so we we split up our courses into three levels. Uh, one would be an introductory course, the second one would be the fluency course, and the third one is expression. So I would call it uh, levels of your ability to use the language. And so. If uh, you already have textbooks and you've started learning French or German or other uh, languages and you feel like you have the basics down, you know what a verb looks like, you know how to conjugate a verb, uh, you know how to decline a noun if that's necessary, well, you can come to our course and you can start working with the first sentences in our fluency course and you should be able to recognize the parts of speech, you should be able to recognize what the sentence is saying. And by the time you get through the halfway through the first book, it'll probably start being kind of challenging. And so you build up the practice from the first half of the book where everything is familiar, and then starting as you go on, it'll start to get less and less familiar. And but you're already into the into the uh, practice mode, and so you'll you'll really start to gain uh, a lot of traction and progress <clears throat> by just going through it. And so uh, we have. Um, three books currently in our series for fluency. And so if you go through all three books, you should be at a level of between B1 and B2 on the European scale. Right. Okay, so that's good. Uh, just a little introduction is all, all that's needed and then you can get started and, and work on it. Yeah, I think if, I think if some, uh, some polyglots and people that have learned two or three other languages, they can actually start directly with our Fluency One book because they have experience with with learning foreign languages. I, I, can, I can use our Fluency One book and start learning any, any language that I, I want to because I, I can recognize how, you know, I kind of can have an idea of how the sentence structure uh, looks. So the other thing is, if you don't have any experience, what I would recommend to people is if you sit down with the audio and you open your book and you listen to the whole audio for the whole book, by the time you close that book, we have a thousand sentences in a book. So if you, once you finish the thousand sentences, that whole cadence of the language and the intonation and, and a lot of the words that have been repeating over and over in a lot of different sentences, you'll actually have gained a lot of vocabulary from that exercise. You'll have gained a, a real close um, recognition of what the, the language sounds like and the intonation of the language. And th that could take three hours. You could sit down on a Saturday or Sunday and spend three hours and, and listen to the whole book, go through the whole thing. And that is an incredibly empowering activity right there because what you walk away with is a, a newfound understanding and knowledge of this language. Then you go back to the beginning and start your regular daily practice, maybe 20 minutes a day, and you'll start to acquire all of this, uh, all of these sentence patterns. So it's um, that's how I recommend you use the course. Great. And also, you say in the in the same paragraph, you say that Goske is a great uh, sort of um, part of language learning where it works great with other in conjunction with other methods you, you, you actually specifically say that you should you shouldn't only use Glasgow uh, what are what are some of the the simple methods that we can use to maximize the impact of Glasgow well 
on, on the side, of course. Well, um, a lot of people, they use these online sites for, uh, for memorizing vocabulary. And so if you already have a, what Glossika provides you is the sentence method. We, we don't provide you the actual vocabulary uh, memorization. Uh, we don't provide you a description of the grammar. So if you have a, a grammar reference, if you have a dictionary, uh, these are all very useful tools to have. And so what Glossika really provides you is with the audio training and, and training that to fluency. But if you don't know what you're saying, and if you don't know what any of the words mean and you can't uh, map them back to your own language in our course, then yeah, it's, it's gonna be a little bit difficult. And then if you already have that, that basis or foundation, you could probably build up uh, from there, starting with sentence one, and you probably would be able to keep up uh, all the way through sentence 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. But at some point, you're, you're going to need a reference a dictionary, you're going to need to look up, oh, what is the, uh, the locative or instrumental case for the word him uh, in Polish or something, because you'd be you may not remember and you wonder, well, it keeps saying it. I, I need to look it up. I need to see it in a chart. So that would be um, something that you would need that you can use in conjunction with uh, the course. Most children, when they learn their, their own language, they, they speak about a million sentences by the, the age of 10. So if you haven't spoken a million sentences in this language yet, you're not even close to a 10-year-old's ability. I've done the math before. I, I, I've told my, all my students in Taiwan before. I've done the math for them. Through all of their high school careers, how many sentences have they actually spoken from their own mouth in English? Very rarely have they, have they gone past 3,000 sentences. And I told them, how many sentences do you need to say out of your mouth fluently before you start to have a communication ability? They say, I have, I have no idea. And I said, you need at least 30,000. You need to say at least 30,000 sentences. This is wait, 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 I just spent my whole education and career on 3,000 sentences, and you're telling me I need 30,000? I said, an average 10-year-old has spoken a million sentences. Come on. <laughs> so fluency comes from saying sentences a lot, a lot, a lot. It's not just repeating vocab vocabulary. It's, it's full sentences. So uh, our course... Uh, has uh, the space repetition 18 times that e every sentence is is, uh, is repeated uh, throughout the course. So you get 54,000 repetitions right there. 50,000 basically puts you over the threshold for uh, fluency. And so that was my goal with this course. Is you start with fluency one, you go through fluency three, and that'll put you over 50,000 repetitions. And you're at the point where the sentence structures are so familiar that you can rearrange them and create all of your own sentences now, and you can basically communicate. Your vocabulary is still be limited. We don't focus a lot on building vocabulary. We focus on manipulating all the parts of the sentences. So you still need a dictionary to help you, uh, or you can use other websites like Memorize or, or Duolingo to improve uh, your uh, other aspects of the language. Duolingo probably works mostly with, uh, with the written form of the language. Um, and then Memorize, they have some spoken and whatnot, but it's uh, mostly vocabulary. So uh, those tools can be used in conjunction. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, and Mike, thank, thank you so much for taking uh, taking some extra time with me today. I know that uh, you're doing a little bit of a, a special promotion here in, in, in honorary of the Chinese New Year. So do you want to just give the listeners the details of that one? Okay, right now we have a, a coupon code that we can give out to all of your listeners. And the coupon code, if you go on our website and you purchase any item between now and the 22nd of February, uh, you type in Love Glossita CNY, and CNY stands for Chinese New Year. So just type it as one word, Love Glossita CNY, you'll get 10% 10 off of your order. And then um, my people just told me there's another option, and if you go on to social media and you use a hashtag GMS2Fluency, and you put, post that on uh, social media, we have another coupon that we can give you, uh, and that's uh, money back on your order from Glossica. So we want to wish everybody a uh, happy Chinese New Year. Um, it usually comes up in January and February of every year. Um, and uh, we, we are also at the Taipei International Book Exhibition 
during the second week of February of 2015. So um, if you're listening to this podcast after the event and it's already passed, then you can probably look up um, some past event photos or you can see um, parts of that activity uh, after it's happened. So, But we'll be at the book fair. Um, we have our own booth there with a lot of our um, printed books on display at the uh, book fair. And so if you're in Taiwan and, you want to, and you're in Taipei, we're right next to the Taipei 101 Tower, and you can come on in. Our booth number is A1318. And we'd love to meet any fans. And I know there's some people uh, traveling from Europe during that week that, that will be in town. So we look forward to seeing everybody. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And uh, if anyone is interested in looking up uh, Glossy, I can recommend going through actualfluency.com forward slash Glossica. That way you also show that you came from me. So yes. that's, that's it for this time. And uh, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. I must say you're, you're an inspiration to many people. And uh, we're, still so, we're still sad about your YouTube channel back in the day, but uh, well, <laughs> life goes on. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make some new content. That's not, that's, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to okay. it. Okay. Thanks, Chris. And nice talking to you.